Today on the Matt Wall Show, an American man in Panama is in jail today after shooting and killing two climate protesters who were blocking traffic on the highway. We'll discuss that story. Also, another GOP debate last night. Who won? Who lost? Does any of it matter? We'll try to figure that out. Plus, the Vatican says that trans people can be godparents, and a prominent comedian makes the case for reparations. We'll talk about all that and more today on the Matt Wall Show. decades ago, private citizens used to be largely that, private. The internet has changed everything, though. Think about everything you've browsed, searched for, watched, or tweeted. Now imagine all of that data being crawled through, collected, and aggregated by third parties into a permanent public record, your record. Having your private life exposed for others to see was once something that only celebrities worried about, but in an era where everyone is public, everyone is a public figure. That's why to keep my data private when I go online, I turn to ExpressVPN. Did you know there are hundreds of data brokers out there whose sole business is to buy and sell your data? The worst part is that they uh, don't have to tell you who they're selling it to or get your consent. One of these data points is your IP address. Uh, data harvesters use your IP to uniquely identify you and your locations. But with ExpressVPN, my connection gets rerouted through an encrypted server and my IP address is masked. Every time I turn ExpressVPN on, I'm given a random IP address shared by other ExpressVPN customers. That makes it more difficult for third parties to identify me and harvest my data. The best part is how easy ExpressVPN is to use. No matter what device you're on, phone, laptop, smart TV, all you got to do is tap one button to get protected. So if, like me, you believe that your data is your business, secure yourself with the number one rated VPN on the market. Visit expressvpn.com Walsh. Use my link to get three extra months free. That's expressvpn.com Walsh expressvpn.com slash Walsh. If you watch enough cable news, you start to realize there are a handful of bankable segments. These are segments that describe some outrageous behavior, which the media presents as shocking. We'll all pretend to be very concerned by it. But in fact, this behavior happens all the time. And the media loves it when it happens because it lets them fill airtime on uh, slow news days, especially. There's maybe no more obvious example of this phenomenon than so-called protests by climate activists. Every time purple-haired climate nuts deface a historic work of art or throw paint on the side of a building. It's usually good for a quick two-minute segment on cable news and a few viral posts on social media. Why are those theater kids so upset with the Mona Lisa? Befuddled panelists will ask themselves. Why are the Oberlin sophomores at the Sunrise Movement surrounding that politician who's trying to get to his car? They sure are crazy. This kind of thing happens constantly. At this point, you only kind of roll your eyes when you see it. And you've been seeing a lot of it lately. A few days ago, for example, climate activists, as we talked about on the show, smashed the uh, glass protecting Velasquez's Venus painting in London's National Gallery. And before that, just a few weeks ago, protesters glued themselves to signs in the National Museum of Natural History in Washington. And there are many, many more examples. But the point is, these climate lunatics act out, uh, deface public property, that sort of thing all the time. And then there's some angry news segments about it, and then uh, everybody moves on. This is the familiar cycle. Radicals who are fixated on climate change, almost all of whom are, we can assume, pretty mentally ill, are treated as nuisances. In fact, you know, many times people seem to pity them because they obviously have no idea what they're talking about. They're very confused, nor do they remotely understand how to persuade others to join their cause because they're just alienating people all the time, and they're generally hopelessly deluded. But the truth which nobody wants to say out loud for some reason, 
is that these climate activists are not simply nuisances. They are instead, in many cases, a mortal threat to sane people everywhere. They are enemies of civilization who endanger the lives of innocents. If you don't believe that, or if you think it sounds too extreme, consider this story from 24 hours ago, which corporate media in the United States has not covered at all. As The Telegraph reported, the group Just Stop Oil gathered at London's Waterloo Bridge, where they blocked an ambulance carrying a patient with a life or death injury. Uh, life or death injury, that's quotes, by the way. It's what we're being told by officials. Here's what that looked like. That's good. So you see them just kind of sitting there. You see them sitting there. You also see the police uh, sort of casually standing there and taking their time, getting the people off the street. Now, according to the Telegraph, in this episode, quote, an ambulance arrived with blue lights and sirens, but was held up in traffic for 10 minutes. The driver of the ambulance told the Telegraph, I'm responding to a life and death emergency. I'm going to pick up a team from Guy's Hospital to save someone's life at another hospital, but I can't get through. So even though they took this kind of lackadaisical approach and everyone's just sitting around, the cops are taking their time, there's actually some urgency to this situation, or at least there should be. Apparently, this ambulance driver was transporting a patient whose lungs had stopped working. He needed urgent medical attention. So as the Telegraph reported, the ambulance driver, quote, pleaded with police officers to let him through on multiple occasions as he became increasingly angry. Officers said they were working to let him through as quickly as they could as activists lay on the ground. In this case, as far as I can tell, the patient in the ambulance survived, thankfully. But ask yourself this question, why haven't you heard this story? How many reports have you heard about climate activists tossing paint in museums? Why is the media reporting about that and not the people these climate activists nearly killed? It's worth answering that question, especially since, unfortunately, people have died during and perhaps because of these unhinged climate uh, protests. Here's one example which also received basically zero attention from our media a year ago this month. A cyclist in Berlin died after climate activists prevented her from getting to the hospital. As the BBC reported, the 44-year-old woman was hit by a concrete truck, and um, a cement truck. And then, quote, the fire service says a specialist rescue vehicle was delayed by traffic because of a climate protest held by a group called Last Generation. A senior Green Party uh, figure condemned the climate protest after the woman's death, saying, quote, Anyone who risks the health and life of others loses all legitimacy and also harms the climate movement itself. Now, what's left unsaid here and what really needs to be said is that anyone who blocks traffic is risking the health and life of others. They are guilty of reckless endangerment at a minimum and murder if somebody dies as a result of their little blockade. It is little different morally from, you know, someone who goes outside and starts firing a gun into the air at random targets. Now, maybe they won't hit anyone. Maybe they aren't trying to hit anybody. But they are doing something incredibly reckless with total disregard for the damage it may cause. But that's not how these people are being treated. Instead, with very few exceptions, police officers are allowing climate activists to blockade roads with total impunity. And that's been happening in Panama for the past three weeks. As the Daily Mail reports, quote, Roadblocks set up by protesters have caused up to $80 million in daily losses to businesses, according to Panama's Association of Company Executives, with, closed, with schools closed nationwide for over a week and more than 150,000 medical appointments missed. Now, these protesters are blocking a uh, major thoroughfare, the Pan American Highway, roughly 50 miles west of Panama City. The point of this protest, apparently, is that um, Panama's government signed a deal 
with a Canadian company giving them 20 years worth of mining rights. Whatever the motivation is, uh, this is clearly putting people's lives in danger, the blockades. When more than 100,000 medical appointments are being missed and businesses are suffering $80 million in losses per day, then you're engaging in a violent protest. There's no other way to frame it. When people miss medical appointments, they tend to get sicker. Some of them might die. On top of that, store owners who lose money every day are going to be forced to make up that revenue in some other way, which might expose them to personal risk that we can't possibly account for. This is what happens when the rule of law breaks down. That's why the rule of law is so important. But for whatever reason, authorities in Panama never did clear this blockade at any point in the past three weeks. They allowed these protesters to prevent people from accessing medical care, from getting to their jobs, from getting anywhere else they wanted to go. What happened next? Well, on Tuesday, a 77-year-old man named Kenneth Darlington, who's apparently an American lawyer, he has a dual citizenship, he approached the blockade, got out of his car, and then he shot two of the climate protesters and killed them. Now, there are a bunch of news reports describing Kenneth Darlington's actions as horrific and quote-unquote shocking. New York Post, for example, had this headline about the incident. American lawyer 77 busted in Panama after gunning down two eco-protesters blocking highway in shocking video. That's not really true. Yes, he did gun down two eco-protesters, but there's nothing shocking about it if you've been paying attention. Now, what he did is obviously wrong. It's murder, plain and simple. Cannot be condoned. But shocking? No, in fact, the only thing really surprising about Kenneth Darlington's reaction is that he's the first person to react this way in the face of, an, of a completely unreasonable, sustained blockade of a road that thousands of people depend on for their livelihoods. We've seen suggestions that people have had enough of this kind of thing, to be sure. A few weeks ago, for example, a tribal cop in Nevada plowed through one of these climate blockades, made some arrests, didn't harm anybody. Um, and for a very long time, left-wing protesters have been doing this kind of thing. They've been harassing, accosting, intentionally inconveniencing and interfering with normal people trying to go about their day. And even if it is just an inconvenience, you, know, you hear that sometimes as a defense of these people that are in the highways. Well, it's just an inconvenience to you. Well, as we, just, as we covered, oftentimes it's a lot more than an inconvenience. But even if it is just an inconvenience... Who says that you can deliberately cause a massive inconvenience for anybody you want to? And if you do that, eventually you might get a reaction that you don't want. You can't just expect it. You can't just expect that everybody, you can just walk out there and inconvenience everybody just for the sake of it, and they're all going to put up with it. But we know they've obstructed ambulances, other emergency vehicles. They've vandalized and destroyed. They've intentionally added stress, hostility, and ugliness to the world. Now, to be clear, nothing I'm saying is intended to endorse Darlington's actions. The point here is not to encourage anyone else to respond the way he did. I wish this hadn't happened. I wish those people were never in the road to begin with. I wish that when Darlington pulled that gun, they responded like sane people and realized they'd pushed this man too far and simply gotten out of the road where they had no right to be in the first place. That's what makes, if there's anything shocking in the video, actually, it's that he pulls the video, he pulls that gun out and points it at them and they still stand there. Um, even with the gun out, they don't get out of the road. So I wish it had played out differently, but it didn't. Instead, what I'm saying is that it was always inevitable that something like this would happen eventually. The ruling class could only suspend law enforcement for so long and so arbitrarily until a Kenneth Darlington appears and takes matters into his own hands. 
And now that this precise scenario has happened, I'm betting it won't be the last time. People are increasingly fed up and exhausted. Even the response to this incident on social media shows that. These leftist protesters are intentionally pushing people to the brink. And regardless of your politics, you can hopefully agree that's not a smart thing to do. It's an especially dumb thing to do on a highway. Road rage incidents, pretty common all over the world. People get stressed out in traffic, unreasonably so. Often they lash out and do drastic things. That's why it's a really bad idea to, you know, flip somebody off in traffic because you're mad that they cut you off or whatever. You don't know who's in that car. You don't know what kind of day they're having. You don't know what kind of life they're having. You don't know how on, on edge, how fed up, how completely and totally done with your bull they might possibly be. Now, that's not to say that, that you deserve to have them pull up beside you and open fire. You don't deserve to be killed for waving your middle finger around. But if that's the response you get, it can't be denied that you could have easily avoided it by making better choices in the moment. And now imagine blocking an entire road full of traffic and effectively giving the middle finger to hundreds of stressed out commuters all at once who are just trying to get home from work or get to wherever else they're going. You are asking for trouble. There's an image of uh, Kenneth Darlington making the rounds on social media. It became an instantly famous picture, um, which you can see here. And you can see that Darlington, you know, he's standing there pointing the gun. Uh, and, and they got the shot, I guess, right after he fired it somehow. It's a fascinating picture in many ways. The picture is worth a thousand words, as they say. And the most interesting thing about it is Darlington's expression. He's not screaming. He doesn't look enraged. He doesn't have the expression of a man who has gone totally insane. Instead, he just looks exhausted. He looks tired. He looks like a man simply fed up. There are a lot of people like that in the world today. People who just want to live their lives, and yet they find every step of the way forces intentionally trying to make their lives worse and more difficult. People who have watched the total breakdown of law and order and who have been pushed to the brink and over it because of all this. Again, it's not an endorsement of Darlington's actions. It's just an observation about the state of the world. And it's a state that maybe this is most important to understand. It's a state that has been engineered by the people in charge. Whether in Panama or the UK or this country, the authorities take this lackadaisical, overly tolerant approach to left-wing protesters engaged in these kinds of disruptions or doing things even worse than blocking traffic or groups of people looting and you know, committing crime in the street and that sort of thing. This is happening all over the place while the people in charge just sort of stand by and watch. Now, if they wanted to protect human life and preserve order and prevent outcomes like this, you'd think they'd crack down on all this stuff. People blocking highways, vandalizing artwork, vandalizing statues, looting, etc. You'd think they'd make sure the Pan American Highway wasn't shut down for the better part of a month. But the authorities are not doing any of that, which can only lead you to the conclusion that they don't want to preserve order at all. Now let's get to our five headlines. Everybody knows that I love my Helix mattress, but did you know that they just launched their newest, most high-end collection, Helix Elite? Helix has harnessed 
years of extensive mattress expertise to bring their customers a truly elevated sleep experience. The Helix Elite collection includes six different mattress models, each tailored for specific sleep positions and firmness preferences. I've had my Helix for years and I love it. It's the best mattress I ever had. If you're nervous about buying a mattress online, you don't have to be. Helix has a sleep quiz that matches your body type and sleep preferences to the imperfect mattress because why would you buy a mattress made for somebody else? Go to helixsleep.com Walsh, take their two-minute sleep quiz, and find the perfect mattress for your body and sleep type. Your mattress will come right to your door for free. Plus, Helix has a 10-year warranty, and you get to try it out for 100 nights risk-free. They'll even pick it up for you if you don't love it, but you will. Their financing options and flexible payment plans make it so that a great night's sleep is never far away. Helix is offering 20% off all mattress orders and two free pillows for my listeners. Go to helixsleep.com Walsh. This is their best offer yet. It won't last long with Helix. Better sleep starts now. GOP debate last night. Um, honestly, uh, I didn't know that there was even going to be a debate until it was already happening. But then I did tune in for a bit. And uh, look, I'll be honest. I, I basically analyze these debates the same way everybody analyzes them. And you will generally like the performances of the candidates that you like. And you will dislike the performances of the candidates you, d- you dislike. Um, and so that's, that's really what every pundit is saying when they're offering their analysis. They may use more words to say it, but it's really just, I liked this person I like, and I didn't like this person who I didn't like. And to that end, I thought DeSantis performed well. I thought he uh, proved again why he would be a fantastic president. He was thorough, reasonable, articulate, thoughtful, uh, competent. Admittedly, again, I already thought that going in. And uh, then I watched the debate, and DeSantis was DeSantis, and uh, I approved. Uh, I thought Nikki Haley, on the other hand, was shrill and insufferable and just awful all around. I thought Tim Scott was was whatever, a, a big meh. Well, that's not true. He did. Tim Scott did have one moment. He doesn't have a lot of memorable moments. He's kind of he's like designed to never uh, uh, have a memorable moment. That's his whole strategy, for better or worse, mostly for worse. But he did have one notable moment, one moment to remember. Um, here he is calling for us to attack Iran. Let's watch that. You have to strike in Iran. If you want to make a difference, you cannot just continue to have strikes in Syria on warehouses. You actually have to cut off the head of the snake, and the head of the snake is Iran and not simply their proxies. In order for us to have a powerful response from America, we have to be in a position of strength. As President of the United States, my foreign policy is simple. You cannot negotiate with evil. You have to destroy it. Okay, so there you go. That was, um, that was one notable moment from Tim Scott, a memorable moment. Unfortunately, memorable for all the wrong reasons. He's casually suggesting that we set off World War III, essentially calling for the deaths of millions because that's what World War III would mean. And his logic doesn't even make any sense. I mean, cut off the head of the snake, so we bomb Iran, and then the snake is dead? It's that simple, huh? No more enemies in the world. No more troubles in the Middle East. Just bomb Iran. You know, we, we've been doing a lot of bombing for the last 30 years, but uh, you know what? You know what? Well, it hasn't solved anything yet, but you know what would really solve this? More bombing. We just we need to set a few more bombs, and that'll do it. So this is the 2004-era republicanism that we get from Tim Scott, and we especially get from Nikki Haley, who is Boomer Khan incarnate, uh, George Bush, except unlikable and annoying. 
And she also needs work on her, uh, she needs to work on her comebacks a little bit. So there was a moment in the debate where Vivek said that Nikki Haley is Dick Cheney in three-inch heels, which is a great line and also true. And Haley didn't have much of a response in person, but then on Twitter, she posted this. She says, Vivek, I wear heels. They're not a fashion statement. Therefore, ammunition. Now, let's think about that for a moment. Let's consider this. Because her team had time to workshop this, right? This was not, this is not in the moment. They, they put this on Twitter. They thought about it. They crafted it. And then they posted it. And this is what they came up. What does it mean? What is it supposed to mean? I really can't make sense. I'm actually not sure. I'm not playing dumb. I don't know what the punchline is supposed to be. Your heels are ammunition. What, do you mean because you want to send them to Ukraine? Is that, I mean, what do you mean? How do you, how do you use your heels as ammunition? Do you, do you know what ammunition is? It's bizarre. And there was another Haley moment that was kind of uh, flabbergasting also. Haley, Haley has been critical of Vivek because Vivek has a TikTok account. And Vivek responded in the debate, by pointing out that Nikki Haley, though she uh, is very critical of TikTok and critical of him for having one, that her own daughter is on TikTok. And uh, Nikki Haley had a rather strong response to that. Um, let's listen. Mr. Ramaswamy, uh, we've talked about this. You campaign on TikTok. How do you get TikTok banned if you use it? Well, I, I, I want to laugh at why Nikki Haley didn't answer your question, which was about looking at families in the eye. In the last debate, she made fun of me for actually joining TikTok while her own daughter was actually using the app for a long time. So you might want to take care of your family first. Leave my daughter out of your voice. Your adult daughter. The next generation of Americans are using it. And that's actually the point. You have her supporters propping her up. That's fine. Here's the truth. You're just the easy scum. answer is actually to say that we're just going to ban one app. We got to go further. We have to ban any U.S. company actually transferring U.S. data to the Chinese. Here's a story most people don't know. Airbnb hands over U.S. user data to the CCP. Now, that's a U.S.-owned company. So this is the problem when you have Republicans that temporarily go the way the winds blow, and now it's popular to talk tough on China when she was U.N. ambassador, called them literally her words, not mine, our great friend. You can't be fair-weather fans of the right policy. Get to the root cause. Even U.S. companies in Silicon Valley are regularly doing it. Cut the virtue signaling. The fact of the matter is Democrats are on TikTok today. The only person, one of the few people who is putting up content the way the actual algorithms work, speaking for pro-Israel views or others, is Ambassador me. Ambassador Haley. Um, more Republicans will join it. But uh, stop U.S. companies from turning over data to Chinese companies. That's the real answer. Like, uh, the Christian, signal. don't get to... Okay, so... You heard, maybe you heard her say there, uh, you're just scum. You are scum. Now, first of all, Vivek's point is valid. It's a valid point. And this kind of, of faux outrage is pretty absurd. This thing, it, it, you know, I roll my eyes at it. This thing where we pretend that it's, it's way out of bounds to ever mention a candidate's family member under any circumstance. Leave the families out of it. Never mention the family. Come on. He, he was not attacking her daughter. He didn't criticize the daughter. He's making a point that involved her daughter, which I think is fine. And it's a valid point. You know, and, and these politicians, like, they, 
They bring their families up on stage, right? They show their families off. And then if anybody even mentions the family, they go, how dare you? Don't mention. I, this is none of your business. What do you got them up on stage for? Like, clearly, uh, clearly you want it to be people's business. You just want, uh, you want people to say certain things. Now, I, I don't think that you should be attacking the child of a candidate unless they become an actual surrogate for the, you know, if, 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 if the child who's an adult becomes a surrogate for the candidate, well, then that's fair game. I don't think Nikki Haley's daughter is a surrogate. But there's nothing wrong with mentioning her existence in the process of making a point. Give me a break. Um, and it certainly doesn't ju- justify calling somebody scum. I mean, scum is that... That's Haley is is ruthless towards Vivek, right? I mean, absolutely ruthless. Here's my question: Have you ever heard her speak that way to anybody on the left? Because I'd almost be okay if this was kind of how she is, and she's just coming out launching like she will. If you come after her, she's going to rip you to shreds. She goes after her opponents, tears them apart. If that was kind of her way of doing things then I still don't think it's appropriate to call somebody scum in that context, but at least it would um, put it into context a little bit. But she never did. When have you ever heard her say anything close to that about somebody on the other side? Scum? Has she ever called a Democrat scum? Ever called anyone on the left scum? You know, the people that are out there uh, killing babies and butchering children and uh, castrating kids. Like, has she ever called any of them scum? And it also shows, by the way, that if you get that rattled, I mean, if you're that rattled and you get that emotional because somebody makes some point about TikTok, then you're not cut out for them. You cannot be president. You're too emotional. You're too easily rattled. But that wasn't nearly as bad as this tweet that she sent out during the debate. She was uh, doing a lot of tweeting during the debate somehow. And she also tweeted this. She says, there would be no Hamas without Iran. It's not that Israel needs America. America needs Israel. This is not the first time we've heard her say this. First of all, it's not even remotely true. What are you talking about? You really expect us to believe that America benefits more from its alliance than Israel benefits from that same alliance? That is nonsense. No, Israel greatly benefits from America. And, and, and besides, if this was true, then doesn't that undercut your entire argument for helping Israel? This is not the first time she said this. Multiple times she has said, well, Israel doesn't need us, we need them. If that's true, then how can you say that in one breath and then in the next breath tell us that it is imperative for the United States to help Israel? I thought you said they don't need us. I mean, they don't need us at all. We could not exist, according to you, and it would make a difference. You, you cannot say both of those things. You cannot say they desperately need us and also they don't need us. And aside from that, it's, this is, this is, it's an insane way to speak about your own country. Nobody talks like this about their own country outside of America. Do you think Israelis say this kind of thing about Israel? They don't need us. We need them. <laughs> this is not how people talk about their own countries. This is a uniquely modern American phenomenon. It's like a sickness, a mental sickness, where some of our leaders, or would-be leaders, 
profess greater admiration and love for and pride in foreign countries than their own. It's just a crazy thing to say. Again, you don't you go, especially anywhere outside of the, uh, you know, outside of uh, the Western world in particular. And you're not going to ever hear this kind of thing. It's your country. You're supposed to say, yeah, they need us. We're important. Like, that's how you're supposed to feel about your own country. You don't put another country above yours, especially if you want to be in charge of it. Now, um, as for Vivek, there was one moment of his that um, is making the rounds, and I think everyone agrees it's kind of his best moment. Let's watch that. Ramaswamy, let me turn to you. Uh, Please make your case. Why would you, uh, why should you be the nominee and not the former president? I think there's something deeper going on in the Republican Party here, and I am upset about what happened last night. We've become a party of losers at the end of the day. We have a cancer in the Republican establishment. Let's speak the truth. I mean, since Ronna McDaniel took over as chairwoman of the RNC in 2017, we have lost 2018, 2020, 2022, no red wave that never came. We got trounced last night in 2023. And I think that we have to have accountability in our party. For that matter, Ron, if you want to come on stage tonight, you want to look the GOP voters in the eye and tell them you resign, I will turn over my, yield my time to you. And frankly, look, the people there cheering for losing in the Republican Party. Think about who's moderating this debate. This should be Tucker Carlson, Joe Rogan, and Elon Musk. We'd have 10 times the viewership asking questions that GOP primary voters actually care about and bringing more people into our party. You think the Democrats, and we've got Christian Welker here, you think the Democrats would actually hire Greg Gutfeld to host a Democratic debate? They wouldn't do it. And so the fact of the matter is, I mean, Christian, I'm going to use this time because this is actually about you in the media and the corrupt media establishment. Ask you the Trump-Russia collusion hoax that you pushed on this network for years. Was that real or was that Hillary Clinton made up disinformation? Answer the question. Go. Mr. Ross. This is how we get our country back. We need accountability because this media rigged the 2016 election. They rigged the 2020 election with a Hunter Biden laptop story. Mr. Ramaswamy, and they're going to rig this election. Your time is up. Accountability. Let me turn That's to Governor, Governor Christie. Uh, so it's a great moment. And um, uh, it, 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 no matter how you feel about Vivek or wh- whoever you support, you, know, you have to admit it's a, it's a good moment. Exactly what needs to be said, going on offense, attacking the Republican establishment, the media, which is what needs to happen, but but doing it. Let me actually clarify that because attacking the Republican establishment in the media, that's easy. Everyone does that. Okay, that so we just in broad terms saying, oh, the establishment of the media, ah, they're so mean. That's the kind of thing that everybody says, and every Republican says. Even Republicans in the establishment will say things like that. Um, but what they won't do, most of the time is name names, first of all. Uh, so they'll they'll speak in broad terms about the Republican establishment, but you'll notice that it's like the establishment is this amorphous organism, sort of, it's like this um, blob-like thing out there, and it has no name or face, and that's how we talk about it. Um, no, the establishment is comprised of actual people, and you should be calling those people out, calling them out to their face. Ronald McDaniel was in the audience, Vivek called her out, called out the media again. You know, you could, you could call it the media in general. Everyone does that. Or you can put them on the spot. You know, specifically. We're on NBC. Call out NBC specifically. It's exactly what should happen. 
And he's absolutely correct about Ronna McDaniel, by the way, the RNC chair. She has been a disaster. Loss after loss after loss under her tenure. It is, it is speaking of insane, the fact that she still has a job. And, but, but here's the thing. She mostly escapes criticism because Trump endorsed her. She is Trump's pick, which again shows that Trump is, he, he still absolutely sucks in the personnel department. He hasn't gotten better at that. Uh, but because he backed her and continues to back her, even as she fails in every conceivable way, um, you know, even many of the people who normally would be eager to, to criticize establishment figures like Ronald McDaniel will not criticize her because she's Trump's person. What are, what are her successes? Can you name one? Name just one. Like, can you fill in the blank? Ronna McDaniel has done a great job with what? With, with fill, anything. Is there anything that she's done well? Or even serviceably. Like, has she done a serviceable? Ronna McDaniel has done a serviceable, jo- serviceable job with fill in the blank. You can't do it. Um, so all that was correct. And this is why ultimately Vivek, if anybody wins the debate, it's Vivek. Um, and I know you might say if you watch the whole debate, you'll say, well, there are other great moments that, you know, this was just one moment. He was, doesn't matter. It, the other, moment, other moments don't matter because this is the moment people are talking about in the, the next day. Like in a debate, there's going to be one or two moments at most that people talk about once the debate is over. Rarely is there going to be a moment that they talk about like a day after it's over, two days after. Um, whoever gets that moment wins. It, it, like, it's as simple as that. I mean, debate should be more substantive than, than that. There should be more to it than that. You know how I feel about the way these debates are conducted in the first place. And the fact that it all boils down to, um, boils down to these you know, clippable sound bites and stuff, it, it shouldn't work that way, but it does right now. And that's especially the case because Trump isn't there. Like it, ultimately, probably, the debates uh, unfortunately probably don't matter. I don't think they make much of a dent in the polls because Trump is the guy out ahead. And in order to get, in order to take some ground from him, you got to land some blows on him. But it's, but as we've discovered, it's just hard to land a blow if he's not there, which is why he's not there, obviously. Um, But if there's any way to win, if there's any way to, you know, make something out of the debate and have it help your campaign, then you, you have to have a moment. You could have a good debate and have great answers and everything is fine and that's okay. And then, you, you know, it doesn't hurt you, but you leave and you're just sort of, it's, it's, just, it's, like, it's like it never happened. It might as well have not happened. Um, but if you want to have it actually help you, then you need to have a moment. And uh, so ha- really, you know, they, most people will say, well, you got to watch the debate to know who won it. I think, I think if anything, you need to not watch the debate to know who won it. You, you, it's, it's the person who wins it. It's like, what are people, what are the clips that are circulating the next day? Who are people talking about? You go to Twitter, you go to Facebook or whatever. Who, who's all over the feed? That's the person who won. It doesn't matter what else. Like the rest of it doesn't exist anymore in the public mind. It might, it, it might as well have not happened. It doesn't matter. I'm not telling you how, how I think it should be. I'm just telling you how it is. And so I go on Twitter last night and Vivek is pretty much the only people, only person anyone's talking about from the debate because of that moment and a couple of others. So he wins. Uh, what will that mean in the end? Will it uh, make any difference? I don't know, but that's how you win. You got to, you got to have the moments. You have to have them. All right. Uh, 
I wanted to mention this too. AP News has this report. Troubling. Troubling. Just to put it mildly. Uh, In the United States, the National Conference of Catholic Bishops rejects the concept of gender transition, leaving many transgender Catholics feeling excluded. On Wednesday, the Vatican made made public a sharply contrasting statement saying that it's permissible under certain circumstances for trans Catholics to be baptized and serve as godparents. Francis uh, de Bernardo said, it's a major step for trans inclusion. It is big and good news. He's the executive director of the Maryland-based New Ways Ministry, which advocates for greater LGBTQ acceptance in the church. The document was signed October 21st by Pope Francis and Cardinal Victor Manuel Fernandez, who heads the Vatican's um, Dicastery for the Doctrine of the Faith. It was posted Wednesday on the office's website. If it did not cause scandal or disorientation among other Catholics, a transgender person may receive baptism under the same conditions as other faithful, the document said. Similarly, the document said trans adults, even if they had undergone gender transition surgery, could serve as godfathers or godmothers under certain circumstances. De Bernardo said this seemed to be a reversal of a 2015 Vatican decision to bar a trans man in Spain from becoming a godparent. So this is, first of all, uh, of course, it's at best confusing and contradictory, which is what we have gotten from Pope Francis through his entire papacy. Uh, it's it's the it's the his calling card really is making everything more confusing, like never clarifying anything, never making anything clear, and leaving people saying, "Well, so what is the what's the teaching here? What what, what does this mean?" Um, lending ambiguity you know, at, at a time at a time when moral clarity has never been more important. At a time when people need desperately clarity, when they need. Uh, They need light shed in the darkness. When there is so much fog and mist and noise and confusion um, that the Catholic faithful and all Christians really are dealing with and living with day to day. At that time, looking to their church leaders for some kind of clarity, what to make of this, uh, it it is in the middle of this that what we get instead is at best, right, at best more ambiguity. Um, and at worst, uh, you know, at best it's ambiguity at worst, it's being led, um, deeper into the darkness intentionally. So, and you know, the thing about this is, and maybe this is part of the ambiguity. It's like, what do you mean by trans? Okay. What do you mean by a trans Catholic? If by that you mean someone who is suffering from gender dysphoria, and they have confusion about this, and they're they're trying to, they're struggling with it. Um, is there any reason why someone like that shouldn't be allowed to be baptized, or um, even potentially shouldn't be allowed to be a godparent? No, not necessarily. If if you're talking about the, you know, if you have a man, for example, struggling with this still identifies as a man and knows that he is a man, but he's struggling with this dysphoria. He's doing everything that he can to, uh, to, to, to cope with it and to get through it and to find clarity in his own life. Um, you know, that is, that is someone who's, who's in, the vir- in the virtuous, in, in, the, in the fight, in the struggle to live a virtuous life. Um, but I don't think that's what's meant. 
Because someone who's simply struggling with, with dysphoria in this way, I mean, one thing, they're not identifying as trans most of the time. So if you're talking about trans, and especially if you're talking about someone who's gone through the transition, quote unquote transition, well, now you're talking about someone who is fully living the lie. And uh, living by Catholic doctrine, living fully in a state of unrepentant mortal sin. And uh, in order for someone like that, this has always been Catholic teaching, in order for someone like that to be, if we, if we want inclusion, which by the way, inclusion in the church, is that the goal? Of course it is. You want to include everybody. But unrepentant mortal sin cannot be included itself. You have to repent of that. You have to face it, repent of it. Uh, change your ways, at least try to change. F face it for what it is, acknowledge it. And if you're not going to do any of those things, then you've chosen your sin over the truth. You've chosen, and you've certainly chosen it over the over the church. So this has always been been the teaching. Throw open the doors, welcome anybody who wants to walk through them, but we aren't going to welcome your sin as well. You can't ask us to to, to, to throw open our arms and embrace your sin as well and say, this is a great sin. We love it. No, just like any of the rest of us, you have to, uh, we, we, we all have our sins that we are struggling with, but you have to struggle with them. Um, and here we're talking about people who are fully living, you know, a man fully living as a woman, living as a woman is living a lie every second of the day. And the idea that we are going to accept that or that someone like that could be a god. I mean, what is that? Godparent? What, so are you talking about a, so a man living, living, quote unquote, living as a woman? Can What kind of godparent would this person be, first of all? Would they be a godmother? Or would they be a godfather while claiming to be a woman? I mean, the whole thing is totally confused. And when you think about what a godfather and a godmother, godparent is supposed to be in the church... I mean, this is supposed to be a, a you know someone who is a offering spiritual guidance. This is supposed to be a role model, a guide to their godchild. What kind of guidance can you offer when you are that lost yourself? You have no idea. You don't know up from down. You got a man who thinks he's a woman, is and what kind of guidance, what kind of spiritual guidance is going to be offered here? This is someone in need of guidance, and should get it, should receive it. But you don't put them in a position of being a guide themselves, obviously. So it is all, as I said, uh, very troubling. I want to play this, this video before we get to the next segment because I think it's just great. Uh, this is body cam footage of a traffic stop where a woman was driving on the wrong side of the road, as women do sometimes. And uh, she gets pulled over. Officer smells alcohol on her breath. What makes this, inter this interaction so incredible is that she runs through a checklist of her victim points, one after another. And the whole thing is like some kind of skit. In fact, I hope it's not a skit. I don't think it is a skit. I mean, as far as I know, this is real. This is an actual thing. Uh, yes, it is real. Um, so it's not a skit, but, it, but you would think. I mean, you would think that it was a skit. You would think it would be something that like we would have put together to be funny. Um, when you see how this interaction unfolds, let's watch it. 
What's going on? Nothing. Why I are you just... driving in the wrong way of traffic? No, I just got changed around. I just moved here like two months ago. Okay. I just got changed around. Okay. Do you understand what's going on though? Yes. You're going in oncoming yes. traffic. I know, and I just decided that it was better just to turn around really f Okay. But I'm sorry. I just have like really bad social anxiety and stuff. I get you. I don't want to step out whenever you're asking for stuff. Okay. Well, we're past that. Just go ahead and step out. Okay, pause it there. So that was the keep track of the victim. Well, this thing's three and a half minutes long, so we're going to watch the whole thing. I don't know if we're going to get to every victim point. But she's already, she's pulled out one of them. Um, she has social anxiety. Now, I don't know what social anxiety has to do with driving on the wrong side of the road. Um, in fact, generally, if you have social anxiety, that's going to make your social anxiety. That's not a good strategy for alleviating social anxiety. Um, driving on the wrong side of the road, if anything, it's going to make it worse. People are staring at you now. Uh, and now the whole world is watching you in the body cam footage. So that's, it's not, it's, I don't know what it has to do with anything. I, I th but of course, she's saying it because she's looking for sympathy. So this, this was the first first attempt. I have social anxiety, and I guess she was expecting that the cop would say, "Oh, well, you have you have anxiety." Oh well, continue on your way on the wrong side of the road if you want. Continue. I, I had no idea. I didn't know you had anxiety. I wouldn't want to make you more anxious. So go ahead, go ahead and get in a head-on collision. Uh, kill yourself and somebody else if it would make you less anxious, ma'am. Uh, well, not ma'am. We'll get to that. Let's keep watching. Indigenous person. Right back here, please. Miss Perry? Am I... Well, I'm non-binary, so... Okay. What do you go by? It's Kai. How can I refer to you tonight? Kai? Kai? Okay. Hey, I'm smelling alcohol. I know. How much have you consumed tonight? Like, probably through Jing. I need to run you through some tests right now. Stand facing me, please. But I just want you to know that I also have very bad social anxiety. You and, and me both. Okay. Okay. Any recent head trauma... Traumatic brain injuries, anything I need to know about? Uh, mental, yes. <laughs> yeah, well, we can tell. Focus on my finger, please. All right. I, I think we missed, I think I talked over it. We, so she said indigenous, so we had uh, anxiety, and then she says I'm an indigenous. As she's getting out of the car, I think we missed that. It's unfortunate because it's a good moment. Uh, as she's getting out of the car, she says, I'm an indigenous person. For, <laughs> okay. Uh, and then she throws out non-binary, and then she goes back to the anxiety well again. Uh, and, then, and then we get to mental. Um, and then she, so she has a... What's now I'm blanking on what's the word they use now for mental health? Anyway, I forget what it is. Uh, but she has she has she has a, a, a mental health. Oh, neurodivergent. That's the that's what she doesn't use that unfortunately. So maybe that's maybe that maybe that would have been the ticket. I mean, she threw out uh, social anxiety, indigenous, non-binary. She said she has mental health issues. But maybe if she had just said neurodivergent, that would have been the fourth thing, and then that and that would have been the get out of jail free card. The cop would have said, oh, okay, well, if you got all four of those. Okay, all four, then uh, please be on your way. Um, and eventually she gets arrested because she's obviously drunk, uh, which, so it's good. You know, it's a happy ending at the end. Um, but the thing that makes this seem like a skit is it's just this, and this is what these people have become. They really have become a self-parody. And this is someone who, she obviously has gone through her whole life like this, that she just assumes that no matter what happens, no matter what she does, um, she can always get off the hook by just throwing out the victim credentials. And mo more than likely, we can assume this is probably the first time in her life ever that that tactic has not worked. 
which is why it's really important. I mean, you do people a great favor when you hold them accountable, when you, when you, uh, when you don't put up with that kind of, I mean, it, 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 and kids, when you're raising your kids, why you got to have consequences for your children. This is someone probably as a child never had any consequences. It's a, it's a great act of love for them. Because when someone lives into adulthood and never really experiences a natural consequence for their actions, never has any real encounter with accountability, they're always able to get, get out of trouble um, by making victims of themselves. It, yeah, it makes them a drain on society. It makes them a danger to society ultimately. But it, all, it, has, it, it basically drives them crazy. It drives them insane. A, per, a person can't live like that. You can't live a life totally devoid of consequence and still remain a mentally healthy and stable person. And so that's how you end up with that. Let's get to was Walsh wrong. So if you own a firearm, then you need to check out Stopbox USA. They just introduced the Stopbox Pro. The new safe is uh, the most reliable, secure place for your firearm. The Stopbox Pro is larger, stronger, and more versatile, crafted from durable, glass-reinforced polycarbon ABS. It's uh, not just tough, it's smart. You don't want to be fumbling with keys or electronic codes in high-stress situations. The Stopbox Pro's patented hand gesture code lock allows quick, intuitive access without batteries or electronics. They understand the critical balance between security and accessibility. That's why the Stopbox Pro is designed to be low profile and portable. Whether at home or traveling, your firearm remains concealed, secure, yet readily accessible as well. Stopbox Pro has an expanded range of 81 combination possibilities, making it more customizable than ever, plus an enhanced surface texture for a better grip, and the improved locking mechanism is a breeze to operate. Don't compromise on safety and accessibility. Visit stopboxusa.com. Use promo code MATT for 10% off your order. Experience the peace of mind Stopbox brings. That's stopboxusa.com. Use promo code MATT for 10% off your order. Okay, so uh, it's a bunch of comments, people that uh, shockingly disagree with me on the abortion issue, um, uh, which I, I never saw that coming. I thought that this, I thought of all issues, I thought this would be the one that we could all agree on. Apparently not. Isla says, abortion's a political loser. Other than pointing out how, ex- how extreme the left is, I wish we could stay out of it. Ann Coulter explains it best. Gabagool says, you'd be the worst campaign manager of all time, dude. Probably true. I don't think you've ever met a woman. Well, that's not... Uh, you just want Republicans to lose so you can complain about the wokes in power for the rest of eternity and collect your checks. Uh, yeah, final sentence is not true. Would I be the worst campaign manager of all time? Eh, probably. John says, it's a losing position. Conservatives should fight the moral battle, but leave the option available. We are not our brothers slash sisters keepers. And says, I agree with you on abortion map of the country doesn't. That's just the reality of the world we live in. Uh, okay. First of all, John, you, you're, you're quoting Cain from the Cain and Abel story uh, in, in the book of Genesis. That, it's like, that's like if you were un- uncritically quoting Darth Vader or something to make your point. Like, he's the bad guy in it. So it's, it, that attitude is the one we're not supposed to have in that story. Okay, when Cain kills Abel and then is asked by God, where's your brother? He says, I'm not my brother's keeper. No, we're not, we're not. The lesson is not that we should be like Cain. It's no, that's, that's the incorrect attitude. In fact, we, we should be looking out for our brothers and sisters, just to be clear. So I think there might be, it's a little bit, not to get in, you know, not to get into um, uh, exegesis too much of scripture here, but 
I think you may have misunderstood the point of that story, but um, is, is abortion a political loser? It is a political loser uh, if you fight it in a losing way. I don't know how else to put it. Like, it's a political loser right now for Republicans. The way that they are approaching it, the way that they're fighting it right now is a loser, yes. Does it have to be a loser? Is there just because Republicans are losing at it right now? Does that mean that they are destined to lose? That there's no, there's no. I mean, the Republicans might be destined to lose ultimately, but but does that mean that there's no winning position to be taken? No, of course not. Okay, I want to remind you that it was not all that long ago. It was not all that long ago that we would have insisted that I was told that it was insisted to me by many people, including many of these same people saying this about abortion now that the trans issue is a losing issue. Okay, it's a losing issue culturally. It's a losing issue legislatively. As recently as three or four years ago, I was told that. Fast forward three or four years, and what do you find? You find you find v- legislative victories on this issue all over the country. You find state after state banning child mutilation. And you find that the culture has shifted also on this issue. It's the polls, the surveys, and all that bear it out, but you don't even need polls and surveys. Pretty clear that many in the public are have are, are now awakened to the insanity of allowing men and women sports and um, you know uh, foisting this sort of thing on children. So, but there was a time when when I was told that that's all impossible. We've lost the issues. No point in fighting on it. And now many of those same people are saying, "Well, you can't win this issue. You can't win." So, so you know, it's just this is the theme, right? You've got people on the right who this is all they ever do. They just tell you what's impossible. They tell you the issues we can't win. They have no suggestions. You know, they have no. You know, it's one thing to say, well, we can't win this issue this way. Okay, well, how do we win? At least have that. At least have some positive vision forward. And don't tell me that it's a political loser to be too hard line on abortion as if that's the problem that Republicans have had, really? I mean, is that honestly what you're going to try to claim? Is it because, and this is, this is the claim. That, that somehow Republicans have been too pro-life, have been too hardline on the issue? What? Most Republicans want nothing to do with this issue. They'd rather not talk about it, as evidenced by these comments. I mean, this is, this is the view of many Republicans, especially politicians. They talk about it if they have to, and then they only talk about it for as long as they have to. And they're on the defensive the entire time, and they're equivocating, and they're compromising. I mean, this is what most Republicans do. I hear this kind of thing. It like makes me say, am I going insane here? That, that the rest of you are living in a world where Republicans generally are hardline pro-lifers? What? Like as someone who's been in the pro-life movement for a long time, let me assure you, let me assure you that is not the problem, okay? Republicans historically have not had an issue of being too gung-ho on abortion. That is, it's just a crazy thing to claim. It really is. So um, if there's a losing approach to this issue, it can't be that Republicans are too hardline because they haven't been. Um, the losing approach is, in fact, what has the, the approach that we've seen on this issue for years now, which is to be defensive, to treat it like it's you're afraid of it, you're afraid of the issue. That's the losing approach. The winning approach is always to go on the offense. And I do not believe it's true that Republicans have been on the offense, generally speaking, on the pro-life issue. 
Uh, and then finally, you'd like to stay out of it. Well, we can't stay out of it. I mean, this this is the world we live in, right? I mean, and sure, I mean, well, you can bow out individually while children are slaughtered, um, but that's going to keep happening. So it's really just a choice of, I mean, there is no there is no flip we can, there's no switch we can flip to just make the issue go away entirely so that it's not happening, it doesn't exist, no one's talking. I mean, if we could do that, then I'd love that. That'd be my favorite choice. If, we, if that was an option, I'd say absolutely. Flip that switch. Let's just, you know, abortion doesn't exist. We're not talking about it. It's not a thing. Um, but that's not an option. So there are a bloodthirsty um, child sacrificers out there who are killing children by the thousands. And we can just sit back and let it happen and stay out of it that way. Or we can realize that this is just an intolerable situation. Like allowing it to continue without protest is not an option. And certainly not one that you can choose while retaining your soul in the process, which is important to me. You know, the holidays are coming up fast, and uh, while you're out shopping for your kids, family, and friends, don't forget to shop for your pets, too. Give your dog the gift of a healthier and happier life with Rough Greens. Naturopathic Dr. Dennis Black, the founder of Rough Greens, is focused on improving the health of every dog in America. Before I started feeding my dog Rough Greens, I had no idea that dog food is dead food. It contains very little nutritional value. Think about it. Nutrition isn't brown, it's green. So let Rough Greens bring your dog's food back to life. Rough Greens is a supplement that contains all the necessary vitamins, minerals, probiotics, omega oils, digestive enzymes, and antioxidants that your dog needs. You don't have to go out and buy new dog food. Just sprinkle Rough Greens on their food every day. Dog owners everywhere are raving about Rough Greens. It supports healthy joints, improves bad breath, boosts energy levels, and so much more. We are what we eat, and that goes for dogs too. Naturopathic Dr. Dennis Black is so confident Rough Greens will improve your dog's health He's offering my listeners a free Jumpstart trial bag so your dog can try it. Get a free Jumpstart trial bag delivered straight to your door in just a few business days. Go to roughgreens.com slash Matt or call 844-ROUGH-700. That's R-U-F-F, greens.com slash Matt or call 844-ROUGH-700 today. Also, Faith Moore, Andrew Clavin's talented daughter, has written a new rendition of the age-old Christmas classic, Christmas Carol, except this time it's with a K. It's a modern twist on the story of Ebenezer Scrooge, except with a female protagonist. In a world where boss babes are champion at the expense of family, Faith is making the case that having what matters is far better than having it all. Christmas Carol, now available to order, uh, and you can, do your, you can order yours on Amazon or wherever you get your books today. Now let's get to our daily cancellation. Today for our daily cancellation, we turn to the comedian Cat Williams, who it may shock you to learn still exists, or it may shock you to learn that he ever existed. He was a relatively popular comedian back 20 years ago or so. Haven't heard much from him since then. Now he perhaps has come up with a plan to get back into the limelight by fully embracing his inner Ibram X. Kendi. And here he is during a recent performance delivering his vision for how America can move past racism in the year ahead. Very inspirational stuff. Watch. White people, uh, it's now time for black people to get paid reparations for everything that black people have been through in this country. Let's pay those reparations. Look at white people. What? Okay, white people, I know you're wondering, why now? Why, Cat? Why now? Why? Why? Well, here's the thing, white people, and I'm being honest with you. As black people, 
um, we've never said this in history, but um, it's time for us to get reparations. Black people, uh, it's our money, and when do we need it? Yeah. You see that white people? We didn't even rehearse that. That's how badly black people need this money. Like, every one of us needs this. And, and white people, you need it too. You need it too. Aren't you ready to get this racism past us? Like, no white person in here has ever had a slave a day in your life. Don't you want to get this the all now, probably the most appropriate response to something like that is to simply say, hell no, and maybe a few other choice phrases and then move on. But that would make the segment a, a little bit too short. So instead, I will elaborate. And it's worth dissecting a, a little bit, as Cat Williams has, in fact, accurately summarized the reasoning behind the reparations movement and thus inadvertently revealing why that reasoning is fatally flawed. There are really three major points here, three major problems. First, he says that black people should get paid for everything they've been through. Now, I'm not denying that black people have been through plenty of things. None of them in this uh, country in the year 2023 have been through slavery, but there's no doubt that every black person has experienced hardship and suffering in, in, in other forms. Even Cat Williams has experienced his fair share of adversity, I'm sure. 20 years of irrelevance being just one of his misfortunes. In this way, black people in modern America are just like any other sort of person in modern America or anywhere else or at any other time at any point in human history. Everybody suffers. Everyone is put upon to one degree or another in one way or another, some much more than others. Ultimately, we all, ha we all have to become frail and sick and then die or die before we have a chance to become frail and sick. Either way, human existence is kind of a tough deal. I wouldn't give it a five-star Yelp review, to be perfectly frank with you. There's some real room for improvement with human existence. Too many difficulties. Unfortunately, however, you cannot monetize those hardships, or at least you should not be able to. You can't cash in. There's no prize counter giving out Jolly Ranchers in exchange for victim tokens. That's not how life works. We all live, we suffer, we die. Join the club. Actually, you're in the club whether you want to be or not. There's nothing special about your hardships. We're all in the same boat, going through our own things. And if you do demand arbitrary financial compensation for what you've been through, and if your demands are met, you're only going to be causing more hardship and suffering to other people who are going to have to compensate for that, who may already be suffering more than you. Second, he says that white people should pay reparations in order to get it off of us. And by it, he means our guilt, our racial sins. But I have none of that on me in the first place. I certainly do have guilt. Yeah, I have guilt. But it's not a guilt I inherited by virtue of my race. We all have things we've done wrong, sins we've committed. We're all sinners. We all have, so we all have guilt in that sense. We all have amends we need to make, people we've wronged in the past, etc. But it has nothing to do with race. And it's not something that, that was passed down from our ancestors along racial lines. So if I have anything to repair in my own life, and I'm sure I do, as we all do, uh, it's got nothing to do with being white. We all earn our own guilt by the sins we individually choose to commit. And as it happens, I have committed no sin against Cat Williams. I owe him nothing at all. I've also committed no sin against any race of people as a whole, and therefore owe nothing to any race. Now, third, he says that reparations will get us past racism. And this is, this is the, um, the path, we're told, to finally living in a post-racial utopia. And here we have the underlying false promise of the entire reparations movement, and really the race-hustling movement 
as a whole. It really comes down to this. And do this one. Here's the, the next thing. If you do this, everything's going to be better. Now, even if I agreed that uh, white people have inherited racial guilt from their ancestors somehow, even if I agreed that black people have inherited victimhood from their ancestors somehow, even if I agreed that Cat Williams automatically has lived a much more difficult life than any white person, um, even if I agree with every one of the race hustlers' underlying arguments, and I do not agree at all at all with any of them, even a little bit, but it still wouldn't matter because there still wouldn't be any reason to believe that paying reparations would solve anything or make anything better. In fact, there are lots of there's lots of evidence going the other way. America has already paid reparations in about a dozen different ways: affirmative action, the welfare state, equity soft-on-crime DAs, uh, bail reform, prison reform, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. These are all explicitly forms of reparations. These are advantages and handouts and changes and systemic changes and privileges bestowed along racial lines in order to account for past oppression. The people that are advocates for this stuff frame it that way. So we dole out reparations every day in one form or another to millions of people at a time. And what do you know? It has only made everything worse. There's more racial tension. There's more strife. More of all the things that reparations are supposed to put an end to. These policies have made everything worse and nothing better. It has bred resentment, ingratitude, entitlement, suspicion, hostility. Start handing out cash payments, or more cash payments anyway, and you'll get more of what we are already getting. Which is why, if we really want to move past this, as Cat Williams says, The only way to do it is to let everybody walk on their own two feet, on the same playing field, with no special accommodations or advantages or bonuses or privileges given out to anyone on the basis of race. In other words, if we want to move past it, then we just have to move past it, which means letting the past be the past. And that is the opposite of what reparations would accomplish or is designed to accomplish. And that is why, ultimately, Cat Williams is today canceled. That'll do it for the show today and this week, as uh, I'll be off tomorrow, but I'll be back on Monday. Thanks for watching. Thanks for listening. Talk to you then. Godspeed.